need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Some place where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. The media is tone deaf to the music of religion in daily life. It's pure, blunt, and I think pretty despicable politics to try to paint people of faith with the bigot label. And if they do that, then the IRS is empowered to take away the tax-exempt status of religious organizations that disagree. No one is worthless for whom Christ died. And of course, Christ died for all. We are not to make any distinctions based on social status or mental or physical ability or power or wealth or anything else. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the power, not you making some decision. I tell you, Christ has decided for you. Believe it, and it's yours. Families putting up their manger scenes from the outdoor nativity store, love, issues, etc. Early in the Reformation, when Martin Luther was still alive, there was an occasion for some pastoral visitation. Luther was not happy, nor were the other Reformers happy with what they saw. Well, Luther eventually died, and the Reformation continued. And there arose another occasion for this kind of pastoral visitation, because as early in the Reformation, so late in the Reformation, there was a lot of doctrinal confusion, and it had to do as much with politics as it did with what was going on in the average Lutheran parish. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, December the 5th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to begin a series on what are called the Saxon Visitation Articles, that late Reformation inspection, and what they were looking for, why they were needed. Pastor Will Whedon will be our guest. Pastor Mark Serberg joins us after that. He has been interviewed for the New York Times in a recent story about an abortion clinic being opened in Carbondale, Illinois. Then we'll spend some time with Pastor Sean Denzer. Looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the three-year lectionary, Advent 3 is ahead. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. A joy to be with you. We need to do a history lesson because these are not well-known, the Saxon Visitation Articles, and the period of the Reformation, most of the time we kind of stop studying it shortly after Luther's death, or maybe we jump all the way ahead to 1580 in the Book of Concord, things like that. But there's a time in there when things became troubling again, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And let's sort of just set it up by actually backing up to what you first referred to. And that is the problem that the visitations were seeking to address. So once the Reformation had taken hold in Wittenberg, it became very apparent that they needed to check out what actually is the condition of the theological education of the pastors out in the parishes and what's the actual condition of the parishes. So they started this thing in uh, 1528. This is what finally results in Luther's writing the small catechism and the large catechism is because he, 
what they encountered when they went out to find out how things were in the parishes was so bad, Luther himself couldn't believe it. Many pastors couldn't even recite the Ten Commandments. They couldn't tell you how the creed went. Uh, And the parishioners were just as bad as the pastors. So this visitation had the goal of like, how can we make sure that we encourage and help one another be faithful to Christ in our teaching and in our practice in the parishes of Electoral Saxony? They, they drew up then a list of instructions for the visitors of how they were supposed to do this. And as Luther wrote on the introduction to the, the instructions, he pointed out this has biblical precedent, right? He said, we read in Acts 9 that St. Peter traveled about in the land of the Jews. And in Acts 15, we are told that Paul, together with Barnabas, revisited all those places where they had preached All his epistles reveal his concern for all the congregations and pastors. He writes letters. He sends his disciples. He goes himself. So the apostles, according to Acts 8, when they heard how the word had been received in Samaria, sent Peter and John there. And we also read in the Old Testament how Samuel traveled around. Now Ram and now here, there, and there. I mean, he's pointing out example after example from the biblical data that, hey, this is a normal part of church life, that we don't just say, oh, great, you know, they've received the gospel over there. Hallelujah, let them go their own way. No, we try to keep connection strong and have somebody always be checking up. I mean, not in a sheerly legalistic way, but in the way of saying, how can we help you further your life together in Christ? That's the real point of what they called the office of visitor. Our own church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has only recently restored that title to what, you know, had come to be called uh, circuit counselors. That was like from the 1970s, I think, when counseling was everything. And, and it was recognized that, no, 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 no. What they are are visitors. They, they, they are to visit the parishes and the pastors, and they are to help toward the end of maintaining unity of faith. All right, put all that in the hopper. And then let's think about what happened in 1555. As after the small call war comes to an end, you have the Peace of Augsburg. And the Peace of Augsburg did this thing where you it, it recognized there are two legal options for your religion in the empire, the Holy Roman Empire. You're either Roman Catholic or you can be Lutheran. Okay. Well, you notice who wasn't particularly named. One of the other streams of the Reformation. Yeah. The time, well, Calvinism. The, the, the bigger stream of the Reformation that wasn't mentioned was, was the Calvinists. So, I mean, you're a Calvinist. You happen to be living in in the empire in Germany. So, okay, are you going to go to the Catholic Church or are you going to go to the Lutheran Church and try to fix it? So, over and over again, this problem of, uh, quote, crypto-Calvinism, most of the time it wasn't terribly crypto, kept on creeping in where people with Calvinist convictions would try to, uh, what's the way that they would put it? They would try to finish the Reformation, which Luther had started by basically changing key dogmas that the Lutherans had confessed. This just, it was, you know, what led to, or in part, it led to the production of the Formula of Concord. But even after the Formula of Concord, it did not come to an end. The documents that we're going to study today, they were actually penned by Aegidius Hunius and a pile of other theologians 
at the request of Duke Friedrich Wilhelm of Saxony, they were after his predecessor had died, who had set up a chancellor, Nicholas Krell. And Nicholas Krell had basically been unapologetically trying to turn Saxony into a Calvinist place again. And once that happened, once the elector that was kind of supporting him died, immediately in Saxony, the guy is put into prison. He's finally executed. Executed, though, not for being a Calvinist, but executed for um, his political intrigue, which he, you know, he tried to pull off. That's the context. So he'd been in power. This guy had been chancellor of Saxony, and he'd been trying to persuade people and putting Calvinists into positions of authority throughout Saxony. So once the elector who supported him was dead, it became really important for his successor to find a way to go through and clean up the mess which had just happened. In other words, how do you return Saxony to a firm Lutheran foundation, a firm biblical foundation on the key areas of dispute with the Calvinists? And to do this, they created an instrument called the Christian Visitation Articles. They're drawn up in 1592, so right after the the, the death of I mean, it's like they did this right away. They knew this was a big problem. It was a Saxon document. It wasn't anywhere else. And because of that, it's part of like Missouri Senate Saxon heritage to actually care about it and have it. It continued in force up till 1836. Hmm. So after 1836, it's dropped, which would make the forebears of the Missouri Senate be very, very nervous and explains in part the immigration in 1839. Right. They're like, we're out of here. So in other words, it remained in force in Saxony. Mm -hmm. And we need to talk about this in a minute. Essentially a confessional document that pastors needed to assent to until the Prussian Union. Pastors and teachers and even government officials, they were all required to subscribe this document in addition to the Book of Concord, which is why it, and by the way, it doesn't say anything that's not in the Book of Concord. It's really just a nice little pithy summary of the areas covered in much more detail in the Formula of Concord. But as they're listed out, it's really helpful for the visitors here. I mean, this is what they had in hand to go in and check out and instruct the pastors, congregations, and teachers, and government officials throughout Saxony to make sure they were on the up and up on these questions, these matters. And we should add, from the times of the earlier visitations, the, the church developed these wonderful little manuals that could help the pastors and the parishes prep for a visitation. They're kind of like, you know, your cheat sheets to go through and make sure you had your answers right. That's what Chemnitz is. We call it ministry, uh, word, and sacrament, I think it's called, the little document. It was his handbook for pastors. These are the questions we're going to ask you on the visitation. Here are the answers and the biblical passages to back it up. And so it was their notes that they could have down and learn. So this is in a similar way what the parishes and pastors could have in hand to look at before these very questions were put to them by their visitor. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're beginning a series on the Saxon visitation articles. When we come back, the Articles deal with four areas of theology, the Lord's Supper, the person of Christ, baptism, and election to grace or predestination. We'll see what they have to say next.
Thank you for almost six and a half million downloads so far this year. Please help us reach more listeners in 2023 by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. What does it mean to be a man? The December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the question of anthropology. And for us as Lutherans, understanding what man is and who man is begins first and foremost with understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, how he is the perfect man. Pick up your copy today by visiting cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Here at Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church, you'll find folks just like you, sinners in need of what only Christ can give, the full forgiveness of all of our sins. In a world where change turns things upside down, we serve a Lord who never changes and who has promised to be with us always until the very end of the age. If you find yourself in the Milwaukee suburbs, Look us up. Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church is the only Lutheran church in Elm Grove, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're beginning a series on the Saxon Visitation Articles with Pastor Will Whedon. He's hosted the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. He's leading a study this week on Jesus calling Levi, a question about fasting. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, a man with a withered hand, the 12 apostles, and Jesus ministers to a great multitude in Luke chapters 5 and 6. You can listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. So they deal with four subjects, and it's kind of remarkable how they are able to locate the real differences between Lutheran theology and Calvinist theology in these four subjects. The Lord's Supper, person of Christ, baptism, and either variously predestination or election to grace. Why were they able to hone in on those four particular important theological ideas? Yeah, I remember uh, reading one place where Hermann Zosser said, you know, at first it seems like uh, two, the, the Reformed and the Lutheran position seem to be so much in sync and parallel at the beginning. He says, imagine a, two railroad tracks where one is only slightly askew from the other. He says, it's, it looks close at the beginning, and the further you go, you're going to have the greater divergence. 
Well, at the beginning of the Reformation, they honestly weren't sure about where the where the divergence would start to happen. It's these four areas, though, which the intermediate generation had noticed where all the problems seemed to arise with the differences between Calvinism and Lutheranism. Zasa, by the way, ingeniously traces that all down to his one—he puts it like this. He said, for the Reformed— the forgiveness of sins is the chief content of the gospel. For the Lutheran, it is the sole content of the gospel. He says, it doesn't sound like it could be that big of a deal. But he says, as it traces out, it gets clearer and clearer that this is the source from which all the other weird stuff happens. But these are dealing with the four places that this divergence specifically showed up in the 16th century. And by the way, not a single one of these areas has been resolved in all the centuries since. Lutherans and Calvinists still disagree fundamentally on each of these areas. Every once in a while, you'll hear somebody proclaim, oh, we've come to agreement with the Reformed on, especially the Lord's Supper. But it's never usually an agreement with the Reformed. It's an agreement to abandon Lutheranism to agree with what the Reformed were teaching in the 16th century. That's hardly an agreement. One more thing before we get into the first article mm-hmm. here on the Lord's Supper, and that is, what was the nature of these? You mentioned examination, but also instruction and catechizing. What was the nature of these visitations? Well, I think it would be, honestly, a very personal visit, right? Your visitor would show up at your parish. He would sit down with the pastor and uh, he would want to know, so what are you teaching about? And he would go through the areas and ask the pastor, tell me what you're teaching. And then he would very specifically ask him, well, do you reject these errors? He would go through those as well. Then you normally, I think, would have this gathering with the congregation to also have a discussion in the presence of the congregation that they might hear what the actual true doctrine of God's word is on all the disputed points, particularly where the pastor had schwaffled or been weak on one of the points. They would want to reinforce and undergird that for the people. Look, this is what God's word says on this. We're not going to back away from it. Getting into the very first one, and I got to know why they began with the Lord's Supper. If I were doing it, I think I'd start with the person of Christ, which seems kind of more foundational. But why did they begin with the Lord's Supper? I think because that's historically where the disagreement first began to show up. As you're dealing with the, the nature of the Lord's Supper, it became evident quite early on that there was you could not reconcile the teaching of this, the South Germans or the Swiss or, you know, Calvin and crew to what the, the Lutherans were very simply teaching in Saxony based on a simple reading of the words. Then I think if you sort of run your way through it, it's just stuff that began to fall out after that. Then we found out, hmm, we don't seem to, from the supper, they found out we, we obviously are not agreeing on the person of Christ because they're saying things about Jesus that we just can't sign on to here. If you're beginning with the sentence, Jesus can't, we're going to disagree with you. And then holy baptism was sort of one that showed up much later, but but we began to realize, whoa, 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 whoa. So it's not actually a means of grace for, for the Calvinists at all. They're not saying that God actually is working salvation through it. It, it showed up even like in Calvinist territories, um, midwife baptism was true absolutely forbidden. The women were not allowed to do it in, a, in any Lutheran territory. If you're a midwife and it looks like the child's going to die, you baptize the baby without hesitation. You just do it. Finally, the area of predestination, I think, really came home after things settled down 
with the full version of Calvin's Institutes where they realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is saying something about predestination that, I mean, people sometimes think that Calvin's teaching on that was sort of, uh, he got his at least his trajectory from Luther's bondage of the will. Not true. I mean, they really are different in the way that they approach it. And the Christian visitation articles are very, very careful to list out all the differences and all of the points of, of dispute. And I just want to note this other thing before we actually start reading the words. They're using the same method that we had in the formula of Concord. They realized you know, people today, they always say, well, just can't, can't you just state the truth and let it go? The church has always answered, you're not really stating the truth unless you're also stating very clearly what you are rejecting. The church has always confessed and had anathema. They go hand in hand. And so this dichotomy of thesis and antithesis, if you will, continues in these articles. How does the first article on the Lord's Supper begin? Well, it begins, first of all, with the very humble and true statement, the pure and true doctrine of our church is concerning the Holy Supper. No bones there. This is the pure doctrine. This is the true doctrine. And this is the doctrine of our churches. In other words, what is to be taught and believed. And the first thing that's stated is the words of Christ, take, eat. This is my body. Drink. This is my blood are to be understood simply and according to the letter as they read. You might ask why. I remember when I did the interview with uh, Matt Whitman, he, he was honestly perplexed about, well, Jesus says all kinds of metaphorical things. Why this? And I did try to explain that for the Lutherans, we pointed out in the 16th century, the context of the words is a testament. And just like you don't read a person's last will and testament in some metaphorical way, this goes to Todd. I'm leaving this to Todd. Well, th- what he really meant to say was this goes to Craig. He's leaving it to Craig. He just called him Todd. Uh, uh, no, we don't do that with human testaments. We don't alter human testaments, certainly not after the death of the testator. And what do we have with the Lord's own death, but then the fixing of an inalterable testament. And obviously on that night, he could have spoken metaphorically. And let's deal with this really clearly. If you're speaking in, in Greek or in Aramaic, you would have an ability to speak metaphor. I mean, you could say this, I mean, I guess if he's speaking in something akin to Hebrew, you would have said, this is an oath. This is a sign of my body. Nothing of that is there. He just simply predicates this, my body, this, my blood, eat, drink for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, one more thing that I think is very worth thinking about with a literal read, ask yourself this. If he had meant a literal read to be done, could he have made it any clearer than what he actually said? When he identifies the body as the body given for you, what body was that, Todd? What body did Jesus give for you? His body. The body that was born of the virgin, right? The body that got nailed to the tree, that's the body that was given for you. And then the blood that was shed for you? What blood is shed? Is there some sort of a metaphorical blood that I don't understand? Or did Christ actually shed the blood that was in his body for you, for the forgiveness of sins? Isn't that what he actually said? So, I mean, once you you realize that, I think there's just a great strength 
to the Lutheran understanding that you take the Lord at his word on this. There's nothing in the context that would suggest the first bit of a metaphorical read. The only thing that does that is our noggins saying, well, wait a minute, how does that work? Well, every time you ask how, you're almost always walking down a very dangerous path. Stay off of it. We don't need to know how. What we need to know is what the Lord himself declared and to affirm that what he says is true. And I think the Lutherans had learned this lesson in dealing with some of the precursors to what would become Reformed theology in the form of Ulrich Zwingli. Right. They'd learned their lesson even in the time of Luther that Zwingli's problem was really with the words of institution. And Luther finally figured that out and said, okay, that's, that's all I'm going to talk to you about. Right. Now, is the words, of, no more other Bible passages until we get past the words of institution. Right, right. I mean, you remember the famous scene where at, at, at Marburg, he writes it on the table in chalk and covers it with a cloth. And, and, you know, and he dramatically pulls the cloth back and points to hocus corpus meum, this is my body. And he says, I, you know, here's where we're going to stand. You're not going to budge us off of these words. Jesus said so. And that was the end of that. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're beginning a series on the Saxon Visitation articles, talking about the Lord's Supper and the words of institution. When we return, that in the sacraments, in the sacrament, there are two things which are exhibited and received together. One earthly, which is bread and wine, and the other heavenly, which is the body and blood of Christ. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with To Call Sinners, A Question on Fasting, Lord of the Sabbath, Man with the Withered Hand, and the Twelve Apostles and Jesus on the Plain. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Do you need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Someplace where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc.
Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Augustana Lutheran, Moscow, Idaho. Concordia Lutheran, Jackson, Tennessee. Holy Cross Lutheran, Albany, Oregon. Hope Lutheran, Sonora, Texas. Mount Olive Lutheran, Madison, Wisconsin. Our Savior Lutheran, Louisville, Kentucky. Redeemer Lutheran, Nashville, Tennessee. St. John Lutheran, Racine, Wisconsin. St. Paul Lutheran, Munster, Indiana. Trinity Lutheran, Tryon, North Carolina. And Mount Olive Lutheran, Billings, Montana. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a series on the Saxon Visitation Articles with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. So what is the second part of this first article? Okay, so there, there really are, let's just note, there are only six statements that are made about the Lord's Supper under the, the thesis, the positive statements. So this is the second one. In the sacrament, there are two things that are given and received with each other. One earthly, which is bread and wine, and one heavenly, which is the body and blood of Christ. Now, that way of speaking should ring some bells for people because it's based on something which St. Irenaeus wrote, you know, way, way, way back in the, in the second century. He said, for as the bread, which is produced from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. So also, our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but having the hope of a resurrection to eternity. See the movies made there? So what are the heavenly and the earthly realities? He means quite clearly, the earthly reality is the bread and the wine, and the heavenly reality, the body and blood. And Lutherans were very quick to point out that uh, it's very biblical to speak about receiving bread in the Eucharist. St. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the bread which we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. The, the cup, meaning the contents of the cup, which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So through the earthly means, there is a participation and reception of the heavenly gift, which is something that they go on to make explicit in their next point. What is that? This giving and receiving occurs here on earth and not above in heaven. So this is kind of addressed to the idea, which it showed up already in the, in the Marburg uh, colloquy when uh, Ecolampadius urged Luther to lift up his mind to the heavenly Jesus. And this is what he needs to do in the supper. You know, he, he needs to in faith ascend to heaven and partake of Christ where he truly is seated at the right hand of God, which just horrified Luther that he would urge him to do that. Luther knew instead and that, that, you know, that's when he has that wonderful statement about, you know, no God but the hairy one and, and, and the God that was in the virgin's arms and on the, the wood of the cross. That's my God. That's the one I'm sticking with. 
And so when Jesus, before he offers his life upon the cross, gives the gift of his body and blood and commands his church to do it in remembrance of him, he tells them that the gift is received by eating and drinking, which is what happens here on earth. There's nothing in the supper about eating and drinking in heaven. In the supper, you actually are eating and drinking earthly elements, and through them, you are receiving the heavenly gift of Christ's body given for you and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So someone might ask innocently, why is that spiritualizing view of ascending? Because I have had conversations with Calvinists who say, we really think we receive the body of Christ, but we believe that we spiritually receive his body and not in the bread per se. Mm-hmm. Why is that so dangerous? Because it sounds so lofty to say, lift your heart to Christ and there sure, partake sure. of his I body. mean, and they can even appeal to the liturgy, right? Lift up your heart. Sure, sure. You know, so people would say, oh, see, there, there it is. But no, not at all. Uh, you, you lift up your hearts to the Christ who is coming to you in his body and blood in and under the bread and wine. It's so important because any departure from the words of Christ ends up robbing you of the consolation that those words bring. Think about how precious it is that he comes to you with the very body and the blood that were born of Mary, that were shed on the cross, and he gives it to you in such an, in, I want to say an innocent way. I mean, he gives it to you in a way that doesn't freak you out or gross you out. I mean, he just gives you his body to eat under the bread and his blood to drink under the wine. And with this, he gives the promise for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Chemnitz, the the, the great second Martin of the Reformation and the second generation, he, he never tired of pointing out that he comes and lays hold of us in this nature that he shares with us. And what a comfort this is to us. We can draw near to him in the supper without fear because he's coming to us with his body and blood. And that shouldn't freak us out. That should fill us with joy. To kind of put a capper on it, in statement four, they say that the true and natural body of Christ, which hung on the cross, and the true and natural blood, which flowed from the side of Christ, are exhibited and received. What is the point there? Well, they're saying that he's not giving you some spiritual substitute for the actual thing. He is giving you his body. He is giving you his blood, the very body that actually won salvation for you and the blood that actually blotted out the sins of the world. That's what he says he's giving you. And uh, we'll hear before we're done with these uh, why that's so very important. They say true and natural. Can you translate that a little bit for us? Because well, I mean, they, when they say true and natural, they mean the, the the actual body that was born of the Virgin and the actual blood which poured out on the cross. I mean, they're going to make it really clear. This is going to be supernatural. Is not we're not saying that he gives you. A, he doesn't give you a finger or a toe when he's giving you his body. He gives his whole body to you as he gives it to every single communicant. So we can never understand how that happens, but we can very clearly see he says when he gives the gift, this is my body given for you. And we know that it was his entire body that was given for us and his entire blood that was poured out for us. In point five, they take up the eat and drink part where they say that the body and blood of Christ are received in the supper, not only spiritually, which might be done out of the supper, Mm -hmm. but by mouth with the bread and wine, yet 
in an inscrutable and supernatural manner, and this for a pledge and ascertainment of the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. That's a marvelous statement there. It is. You notice how that tied to uh, what Irenaeus said about, uh, you know, because the heavenly element is there and comes to us under the earthly element, our bodies, which are earthly, receive this promise of a heavenly resurrection. So uh, the same point they're making here. The body and blood of Christ are indeed to be eaten by faith. In other words, you're to believe what he says, that his body was given for you, his blood was shed for you, and that happens well outside of the supper, right? Todd, do you believe at this moment that his body was given for you and his blood shed for you? Yes. Then you are eating Christ spiritually. Christians do this all the time, and it becomes very important for us to recognize that is the primary meaning in John chapter 6. The eating of faith. The eating of faith. But note here as well that what he does in the supper is to give us his body and blood orally or mouth. I mean, mouthly is really kind of the word there, right? I mean, he puts it into your mouth, his body and his blood. And they don't try to give you, so how can he do this? They're like, don't ask us, you know, talk to the boss. He's the one who said it. We're not going to try to explain that. All we know is that he doesn't lie to us and he can do anything that he promises to do. So when he says, this is my body, I'm not going to say, well, it can't be. Your body's at the right hand of the father. I'm going to say instead, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm curious, is this why kind of maybe uh, kind of the popular diagnostic that Lutherans may have adopted for kind of sniffing out a Calvinist pastor would be to ask that question. When you uh, administer the Lord's Supper, what are you holding in your hand? What do you place in the recipient's mouth? Yeah, that was actually a little pre before, before Calvin was really on the scene, but the same problem just continues with Calvin that we had earlier with Swingley and you know, with other reformers who were just trying to go down that symbolic path. It was Luther's letter to the Christians of Frankfurt. They weren't quite certain about their pastor. He said, look, just ask him, what's in your hand? What are you putting in my mouth? That's what you need. And if he can't say the body of Christ, run. Don't stay there. Leave. If he can't say, I'm giving you the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, you don't want to be receiving communion there. It's a, it's a wonderful little uh, document that I think the whole of it is in uh, one of the Logia editions translated by our, our friend John Vicker. And then the final point here is that the body and blood of Christ are received orally, not only by the worthy, but also by the unworthy who approach them without repentance and true faith, though with different effect. By the worthy... They are received for salvation by the unworthy for judgment. Why is that an important point for them to make vis-a-vis the Calvinists? Well, the Calvinists, as we're going to hear when we look at the antithesis to these, clearly did not believe that a person who was, because to them eating is essentially faith, then if you don't have faith, you can't really be eating. So the eating can't actually bring you judgment per se. That just runs afoul of St. Paul's very clear language in 1 Corinthians 11 about unworthy eating. And because of that, the Lutherans simply rejected it and knew that the whole point of Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians 11 fall to pieces if it's not true 
that what's being given is, I mean, he, Paul did not say that you sin against a symbol. He said you sin against his body and blood. So we need to be very clear on that. And the, the Lutherans were just, this to them became the ultimate litmus test for if you're dealing with the Calvinist was to ask what is put into the unworthy communicant's mouth. Because no Calvinist is going to say the body of Jesus. Finally, before we let you go, next time we'll take up Article 2 on the person of Christ. What should we look forward to there? Well, if, if you're thinking, oh, no, it's going to be just like the Catalog of Testimonies again. No, be at peace. This is so short. And it just goes through and we'll reiterate. You're going to be, when we're done with it, you're like, now, why didn't the Catalog of Testimonies just put it as beautifully and simply as that? You'll <laughs> love it. Pastor Will Whedon is Assistant Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He is author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Pastor Mark Serberg joins us. He has actually quoted twice in a New York Times story about the opening of a an abortion clinic in Carbondale, Illinois, the story in the New York Times, when the abortion clinic came to town. We'll get his reaction to the story itself and what the pro-life community is doing now that they're dealing with an abortion clinic in their own town. Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. Confessional Lutherans, we've got your back. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Do you want your neighbors and community to see what you're celebrating this Christmas season? Why not display an outdoor nativity in front of your home or church? It's a great way to show others what Christmas is all about, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out the Outdoor Nativity Store at OutdoorNativityStore.com. Durable, affordable, and American-made nativities. OutdoorNativityStore.com. OutdoorNativityStore.com.